I know you. It's great to have you back on the show. Good to be back. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. I know you need to be out there getting signatures. We are. Maybe you'll get some time to enjoy the day. <laughs> when was your last day off? Did you ever have one? I took a day off. Um, I did take a day off uh, after the new year. Okay. And so like January, that first, like those first few days of 2018, I took a breath. It was a good breath. It was nice. Do you guys have any on your on your days off? Do you have any kind of prohibitions on on speaking about the campaign? Because Justin and I try, try to take a days off that we don't we don't talk about. Yeah, we try. It's hard. I'll be honest. Like there's days we try to go out to eat, but we might run into somebody who knows what we're doing. So, so. <laughs> and then you have a conversation, and next thing you know, you trigger something in your mind, and. <laughs> You know, but we do, uh, what I try to do, and Lacey's really good at making sure that I'm good at this, is, um, you know, not having the phone anywhere near me when we sit down <laughs> so that I can just really focus and not get in the habit of picking up to see, you know, what's going on. With Antonio Delgado there from our interview, which will come shortly. Welcome back to Spotlight 19. This week, our tiny town hall with Antonio we only have one more candidate after him left, so we're entering the home stretch of our series. Thanks for tuning in again. Before we begin, I just wanted to wish everyone a happy Women's History Month. There's a Black Women's March planned for April 7th, 2018, over the Tappan Zee Bridge. The Black women of Westchester, Ulster, Orange, and Rockland counties have a set of demands including improved services here in our region for black women along with investment in community over the militarized police you can find out more about supporting this march at calllblackline.com okay so just to recap the hashtag pack the court for cali last week we told you about how activist and rise up kingston founder cali jane was issued a summons by 721 media she had an arraignment on march 20th with about 100 supporters outside the charges were filed by 721 media the company that owns and leases to Fazo, and she was charged with trespassing since she walked through 721's parking lot to drop off a comment card in Fazo's office callie has another court date on march 27th as does a erin broadhead uh, a Kingston resident who was arrested and alleges police tased and pinned him to the ground. We hope you will consider joining NY19 folks to stand with Callie and Adrian. Uh, we often think about national cases of police brutality, and this week we remember uh, Stefan Clark, who was shot 20 times by officers in Sacramento and was unarmed. But it is a problem right here in our community, and there are ways we can support this meaningful cause. Before we get to his votes, he had a time to meet with Ben Shapiro this week, a conservative podcast host who believes abortion should be criminalized, and who says the majority of Muslims are radicals. So be sure to tell any friends that might have the misconception that Fazo is a moderate. 
that he's aligning himself with the most conservative fringes of the Republican Party. And speaking of bad alignments, the Dutchess County Republicans are hosting the controversial ex-sheriff David Clark on April 17th, 2018. Clark is also one of the most bigoted fringes of the conservative movement, and while he was sheriff, many people died in the Wisconsin jail he was in charge of, including an infant. But here's what Fazo had to say about Clark back in June of 2016. What a tremendous patriot we have in Sheriff David Clark. It's so great to be with you, Sheriff Clark. I truly appreciate what you're doing. Moving on to Fazo's votes. Last week, he voted for a bill that permits startups to avoid registering with the Securities and Exchange Commission unless they were offering $75 million in securities, raising the limit from what is now at $50 million. This just ends up increasing risk to investors. He also voted on a bill that lets terminally ill patients try experimental treatments that haven't been approved by the FDA. While this sounds like a fine bill, a lot of the times the treatments are not covered by health insurance and give patients false hope and could bankrupt the patient's family. This bill is a boon to big pharmaceutical companies that can now exploit the terminally ill. Finally, Fazo voted for the budget bill, which, as usual, increases the military budget tremendously and not much else. Defense contractors are getting $144 billion through this budget, the biggest spending increase since the start of the Iraq War. Speaking of which, John Bolton, the new appointed national security advisor, loves war and is considered a hawk. And if you think Fazo will denounce him, don't hold your breath. Bolton gave Fazo $10,000 and has endorsed him. Back to the budget bill. Fazo is touting things in the bill like more money for the opioid crisis and a few environmental wins for New York 19, like recognition and funding for the Delaware River Basin. But in reality, this bill does not increase the much-needed federal subsidies to the Affordable Care Act exchanges, and we know increases to health care would be the best way to address the opioid crisis. It does not require the IRS to enforce the individual mandate in the ACA, and many vital EPA programs are being cut as well. Number 1. In 1996, FASO voted against a bill that would curb water pollution from non-point sources. Number 2. In the same year, he opposed Timothy's Law, which would have required insurance coverage for mental health on par with physical health in New York State. Number 3. In 1996, Fazo started using a vehicle provided to him by New York State and paid for by taxpayers, although he lived only 30 minutes' walk from Albany. That may be why we never hear any criticism from Trump's cabinet coming from him of the constant wasteful spending going on there. Number 4. Fazo voted against pay raises for firefighters and New York City police officers in 1995, despite Governor Pataki and Mayor Giuliani's support for the bill. And last but not least, he opposed a bill in 96 that would have required curriculum on the Irish potato famine in New York schools. He called it just, quote, silly. 
And now we move to our tiny town hall series with Democratic congressional candidate Antonio Delgado, here on Spotlight 19. Hi, I'm Matreya, and I have a video blog called I, as in the eye in your face, on politics.net, for those of you who don't know. I am 12 years old, and my school recently did the walkout. At 10 o'clock, we all walked outside, and we stood around 17 flowers for 17 minutes in silence. Me and my friend Emily had signs. Some cars that went by us beeped their horns for us. Matre, that's, uh, how did it make you feel? I mean, I think, you know, you take 12 years old? Mm-hmm. So you, you, where did the idea come from? Was it something that you had heard about or you knew about and you wanted to be a part of it? I wanted to be a part of it because this is a huge issue that people aren't doing enough about. Some people mock these kids for being kids. Well, we've waited for the adults to pass strict gun laws. Now we kids need to take a stand. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I think it's such a um, courageous thing to do. You know, I think we adults sometimes uh, turn all this into politics when really it's just about right and wrong. Um, and I think, you know, there's no reason for young people like yourself uh, to have to uh, fear uh, for your life when you are learning. And that is the point of school. The point is to go there, uh, learn and improve your future. And it's incumbent upon us as adults, as parents, as um grandparents, aunts, uncles, uh, to do the work uh, to make sure that our young people, people like yourself, with such bright futures uh, are, are protected. And so I applaud that work. Um, it's, it's very much important, uh, very needed right now. And I think you're showing us the way here. We know that you're in support of them, as any decent person should be. But gun lobbyists have extraordinary power. They have money. They have Congress people who are beholden to them. And they have a, a party's views centered on what they believe in. So what are you actually going to do to get these laws passed? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think you're right. I mean, we have folks in Congress right now, our current congressman, uh, John Fazzo, uh, who take money you know, from the gun lobby, from the NRA. Uh, and by virtue of taking that money, in essence, have agreed to only do what they're told to do as opposed to fighting for the people. So it starts with first making sure that we put people in Congress who refuse to take money from the gun lobby, who refuse to take money from the NRA. Because at that point, you know you have somebody who's in Congress who's only thinking about how to protect the people and not thinking about how to protect the gun lobby. Once you have somebody in Congress who is not beholden to money in that way, that individual can then act on their principles. Right. They can act on their values. And so here's what we know about gun violence in this country. The vast majority of young people, old people, Republicans, Democrats, gun owners, folks who don't own guns, they want universal background checks. They want to close gun show loopholes. They want the CDC to study gun violence. They want to ban bump stocks. They don't want teenagers to be able to purchase guns, uh, particularly military weapons of war. Uh, These are things that across the party spectrum, people want to focus on. Uh, And yet we keep putting people in Congress who don't allow that conversation to happen. So I would be one of those individuals in Congress making us have that conversation. I would be speaking out at every turn saying, why aren't we putting bills on the floor to ban the bump stock? Why aren't we putting uh, bills on the floor to make sure the CDC studies gun violence? Why aren't we doing these things? And then once we do have those bills, I'd sponsor them and I'd fight for them and I'd advocate for them. And of course, I'd vote yes for them to make sure that they passed 
uh, and work very hard with my colleagues to make sure that we do those things collectively. Thank you. You're welcome. And my second question is, how do you think you can beat John Faso? Well, that's a great question. I like that question because that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to beat him. Uh, and I think the way to beat John Faso is to first and foremost, work really hard. You have to be able to work and be seen and be heard and talk about your vision for the people, as I have done now for almost a year. I've gone to all 11 counties in this district. I've talked to Democratic committees. I've talked to Republicans. I've talked to Faso voters. I'm making sure they understand my story. A young kid growing up in Schenectady, working class roots, who with hard work and a good education, found a way. Right. And I made sure that with that, we get folks to buy into this idea that you don't have to be a politician uh, to run for political office. You just have to care about people and want to serve. And that's what I'm here to do. I think also I've been raising some good money uh, and it's important to have to raise money if you want to compete against a guy like John Fazer, who has a lot of money behind him. Uh, so we've raised that money and we're using that money to build a big organization all across this district uh, from end to end. Uh, with food organizers, with offices. Uh, and I think with that, we can really inspire folks to come out and vote. And that's the big thing, right? The big thing is how do you make sure people turn out and inspire people to really take this democracy back and be citizens and not just consumers? Thank you. You're welcome. I'm Doug. I'm a um, Rosendale resident for the past 12 years. and um, Good to meet you, Doug. Good to meet you. And uh, we're this particular this district has a lot of um, you know Bernie supporters and you know very very progressive people, and yet it also went to Trump. Mm -hmm. So we've got some you know very old school conservative folks living right next door to very very progressive people, and um, so I'm curious about how you think you can not only um, convince, well, more, 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 more importantly, once elected, how can you um, be a representative for such a diverse group um, of people? Group of people. Great question. And I think it's important to understand what the common thread is between folks who support Bernie Sanders and folks who support Trump, because there is some commonality there. I would argue the commonality is people are very tired of the level of dysfunction uh, in our politics. Uh, the system is broken. You know, Bernie Sanders talks a lot about it being rigged, as did Trump. Um, the fact is, whether or not Trump's approach was, you know, for a more sinister motive or not is beyond the point. Ultimately, they both were kind of making the argument that for a very long time, for too long, the system has not been working for ordinary working class, middle class folk. It just hasn't. Uh, and the more and more you have consensus on issues, even something like dealing with the problem of gun violence, but also dealing with uh, taxation and, and who should pay more and not more. These things we have broad consensus on. And yet the folks we have in Washington are not connected with that will of the people. They're not they're not plugged in. And so there's a real frustration and that frustration can manifest itself in different ways. Right. And it's imperative that we put people in Congress who are deliberately trying to figure out and intentionally trying to figure out how to make those groups understand they're on the same page, that we're all uh, hurting here, that we're all being left behind. Right. And that we have to have folks who will fight for everybody for issues that matter to them, not just the economic ones, which are important, but our value set too, right. Being honest, integrity, character, 
you know, hard work. These are the things that I think, whether you're a Bernie Sanders person or a Trump or somewhere in the middle, we all feel like we have to restore our values here and get back to making sure that working folks have real paths to opportunity. Would you say then that um, the system is rigged is part of your message too? Yeah, I don't, you know, the rigged language to me is, uh, yeah, you could say it. I mean, but I would argue that it's, it's, uh, it's broken. And by virtue of being broken, um, it, it tends to operate in a way that disadvantages the vast majority of folks who don't have access to their democracy. That is the problem. You have a handful of folks and big corporations who dictate the terms of how this government is working. So it no longer promotes the general welfare, which is exactly what the purpose of government ought to be, as stated in the preamble of the Constitution. Right? It no longer promotes the public good. It enables private greed. You can call that red. You can call it whatever you want to call it. I call it broken. And until we fix it with people who actually come from the margins, who understand what it means to work hard, who understand the value of a good education, who understand the value of good wages that are reliable, we won't be able to fix it. Great. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Next up, a full interview with Antonio Delgado and Sajra at the helm here on Spotlight 19. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you for taking the time to oh, be back here Thank you. It's good to be us. back. Yeah. Um, so this is the hardball interview. Mm-hmm. I haven't gone easy on anyone, and unfortunately, you're not going to be spared either. Um, I like it. Bring it. But you have an amazing principled platform. I don't really have a lot of questions about it. And I, I just had the opportunity to listen back to our interview from July when mm-hmm. we were all melting in this very same room. Um, but how one of the parts that comes with campaigning for almost over a year now is this intense scrutiny into your background and into uh, issues of electability. And uh, Justin, just we kind of got into a discussion on healthcare And Many of the questions that people have sent me, and uh, one in particular that comes from Marlene Alfieri, who has been at some of the other tiny town halls, is Medicare for all. Why is that something that you don't support? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I want to be clear. I'm I'm glad we start with that. It's not that I don't support Medicare for all. Here's what I don't support. What I don't support uh, is the view that the only viable option that we should be talking about as Democrats is Medicare for all. That's what I don't support. Uh, To be honest, I find it quite dogmatic. Um, I think uh, there's an objective here that we all can align behind as Democrats, as progressives, and that's universal coverage. And there are different ways to achieve that. The world has taught us that. There are 33 developed countries in the world. Half of those countries have a single payer system. The other half do not. We call all those developed countries universal and we malign the fact that America is the only one that doesn't without always highlighting that fact. Um, So the question for me is really about how do we get on the same page to fight uh, for any form that we can accomplish? And yes, I do think at this moment, it's probably more viable approach collectively to pursue a public option to give folks the choice to opt into Medicare. By virtue of doing that, the folks who want to keep their health care can do so while still fighting for universal coverage. 
It also enables us to transition potentially into a single payer system in a more gradual way uh, if that's where the uh, the decision takes us. Right. So that to me is how I look at this. And, you know, I think this notion I've heard this. I'm, I'll get out in front of this sure, because I've heard certain candidates um, suggest uh, that because um, I've received contributions uh, from individuals, not companies, individuals uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. Therefore, that is somehow coloring uh, my point of view on this. Uh, that is straight out of the Republican playbook. That's what that is. It's divisive. Uh, it has no merit, not founded in a single bit of fact. Um, and it is, in my opinion, the problem with politics most of the time. And it's, it's unfortunate uh, that even on our side of the aisle, uh, this is sort of becoming the approach we want to take to undermine someone's credibility. You can have a different point of view on these issues and it could be reasoned based. They don't have to be nefarious in why you might believe one way or the other. What do you say to folks that their litmus test for choosing a candidate, though, uh, the actual voter is, I want a candidate who's for Medicare for all. And one of the reasons for that, it's it's great to have a public option, right? You can buy in. But if going back to Justin's question where you're a freelancer and you might be employed for a period of time, what does this actually look like, this public option where you might be offered healthcare from your employer, but then there might be a period that you're not working for that employer. Do you have to switch back and forth? And does that then create more paperwork for you and having to go back and forth between plans where your employer might be offering you a plan and it's great. And, you know, you just mentioned people being able to keep their plan. Um, so how do, what does it actually look like to have a public option, you know, using the example of someone here in this district that is kind of intermittently able to get private insurance and also might have to buy into a public option. Well, that's the benefit of having a system that's already been built out and been successful, very successful. Medicare has been a very successful program, right? So the process for buying into Medicare, number one, will be a lot easier than it would be buying into a private insurance marketplace, number one. Number two, um, the key thing to understand here is that once you have uh, uh, expanded Medicare, Right. And you've expanded the government's ability to cover and subsidize anybody who does not have the means to buy in. Right. It's the critical piece here. The assumption sometimes is that the government is not going to be able to enable or subsidize folks who don't have the ability to buy in. But that's the point we're trying to fight here. That's that's the argument we're making is that we have to make sure that we're putting people in a position uh, to purchase health care if they don't have the ability to do so. It's imperative and incumbent upon the government to enable that process to happen. So you have means tested, but you do it in a way that is more expansive and more inclusive and broadens the ability of folks who don't have the means. Right now, we're pricing people out. We're going in the wrong direction. And and that's an important piece to, I think, understand when, you, when we're having this conversation. And I also want to make the point with a Medicare for all position and a single payer system. Um, the fact is, folks, we collectively will have to figure out how to pay for all of this stuff. Um, whether it's, you know, a single payer system that's completely government run or whether it's having folks buy into a public option, uh, folks will have to figure out how we pay for it either way. So if it comes up for a vote, the Medicare for all bill that is out there, it's in the Senate and in the House. Do you vote yes or no? Right. Great question. As it currently stands, the bill that everybody's talking about, right, the Conyers bill. 
Conyers himself says, I don't know how we're going to pay for this bill. Don't know how to do it. So in my mind, as I proceed through this problem, I say to myself, I'm comfortable co-sponsoring a bill, Medicare for all. When that bill details how we're going to pay for it, when I know exactly the way in which we're actually going to practically move forward with this. It's not that I'm against the idea, but I'm also someone who tries to go about this process from a pragmatic way uh, while not undermining our core set of principles and values. That's what democracy, in my opinion, ought to look like, right? It shouldn't be this all or nothing approach. We are a diverse country with a lot of folks from all walks of life who are coming at this with different perspectives. And it takes leadership, right? It takes somebody to go out there and say, how can we come together uh, and find solutions that work for everybody? So it's not an either or for me. It's about making sure we get to the bottom of the answer in a way that's most productive uh, and that reflects our values as a democracy. Sure. And uh, I often say that we could go on all day about (laughs) Medicare for all, but I have some other questions and um, go ahead. Can I just say something as someone who's been on Medicare for 27 years? Yeah. My name's Arlene. Hi, Arlene. And I have a significant hearing loss, and I became disabled as a result of it in 1991. And I was approved for Medicare disability, because back then they actually approved people for disability, unlike the way things are now. So I have been on Medicare since 1991. But I was also employed by Cigna, of all companies. Mm-hmm. Um, what people don't seem to understand is Medicare is not all-encompassing. You basically need secondary insurance, or you can get wiped out, because it doesn't cover 100% of anything. It, it, there's no stop-loss. There's no point like there is in private insurance where you get to a point that the insurance takes over and you don't have to pay out of pocket. And that's why everybody or everybody who can afford to on Medicare buys once I became, when I, once I turned 65 and retired, I didn't have the Cigna backup anymore, so I had to buy what's called supplementary insurance. So between that, I'm paying over $400 a month on one person. Okay, there's no allowances for families or anything like that. So you're talking about a big, huge redesign of Medicare as well to get it to adapt to families, to people having babies, to all that sort of thing. So it's it sounds great. Medicare for all will just buy in. But it's way more complicated than that. That's my point. And I really appreciate that. Because that's what it boils down to. It's very easy for me to, to come into this space and say, Medicare for all, that's, and, and keep it very simple without doing the hard work of saying, well, what does that actually mean? How do we get there? Um, how do we make sure that we're not just talking about it, but we're trying to figure out how we achieve it? Um, that's what government is. Right. This other stuff with the talking points and, and I don't dismiss and I'm not trying to belittle anybody who uh, is coming from a very principled place about this and who feels like we have a moral imperative to take the profit motive out of our system. Believe me, I am empathetic to the fight and I know it's a real one and it's one that we as Americans have to buy into. I don't dispute that at all. But I also think that as we have this fight, we must be mindful of the practical reality of how we can achieve it. Um, And I think marrying those two worlds 
uh, is the best way to proceed on this. Sure. And and thank you, Arlene, for your insight into it. And it's, uh, you know, one of the things that comes up is after the Affordable Care Act, a lot of people's premiums have gone up and are ourselves included. And we're about to have to do a lot of interesting paperwork just to get, you know, our child onto our plan. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if it's actually been made it on the show, but Justin and I are expecting and I just had to sit down with a colleague about, you know, you need to you need to file for the Social Security card or like as you're in labor and get the get the birth certificate right away just to make sure you don't have to you know spend hours on the phone with your health insurance company. And we're we're very lucky and we have great insurance, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we're we're able to navigate the system in a in an effective way. So there's a it, this this issue when it's just a kind of a line item on people's campaign websites. Um, it encompasses so much more than that. So absolutely, um, absolutely. But as as we kind of go into this very fascinating primary with now seven Democratic candidates. Um, Heating up. <laughs> we have, uh, people have been digging into people's pasts and histories. And um, I appreciate that you, I think, have been very forthcoming since the beginning. Um, but an issue for people that have seen the losses in 2014 and 2016 is people who move here to run. And I know you've addressed this before, and some people consider Schenectady outside of the district, but we kind of made it a point that it's it's 30 miles away. It shares a lot of the characteristics of the cities here in New York 19. And I don't think it's valid to say, well, he's never lived in the district before 2016. But you also haven't lived here after you uh, moved out of upstate New York since college. So how do you plan to address this? The, the NRCC is already you know, making their attacks. Yeah, I it's... mean, we, we know what they're going to say. You know, I was the first candidate to take an ad out uh, against John Faso, highlighting uh, his false promise to Andrea Mitchell uh, when it came to the question of uh, repealing the ACA, which he voted to do so twice. Um, and the response from his spokesperson was, in fact, to call me a carpetbagger. Um, so we know this is the approach uh, that's coming, which is good news for me because now I know what the uh, what they're going to say. Uh, and I kind of had a feeling, right? And I, I think it's important. I, I want to get a couple of facts on the table. Um, you named or you said there are about seven candidates. And I don't and I haven't, don't know much about, you know, Aaron at this point. Um, but I do know that among the other gentlemen in this field, um, none of us uh, have voted in this district uh, in two cycles, except for David Clegg. All of us have come back very recently um, uh, to do this work. Um, uh, and, and for me, I can explain why I came back. Um, and to be clear, I came back, uh, not to run for Congress. Um, I came back because I made a decision, uh, after Trump's election, uh, that it was time to change my life course. Uh, I sat down with my wife who grew up in Woodstock an hour away from me. Um, when I was being raised in Schenectady, we were born the same month in the same year. Um, we had long talked about coming home. I'd been a lawyer at Aiken Gump. Um, you know, for some years, uh, was on my way to making partner, um, wasn't quite sure what the path would be there. If that's actually what I wanted to do. Um, we're at a real crossroads 
uh, and personally, I was and professionally uh, just turned 40, uh, twin boys, four years old, a lot on our minds. I, won't, I don't believe that that age. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's 40? Impossible. You don't believe 40? <laughs> no. Um, and, 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 you know, we always talked about, you know, raising our kids with our parents. You know, I didn't have my grandparents around. Um, you know, so it was important. Uh, we just never had a timeline. And, and I always knew, you know, we might get to this, you know, after I left law school or graduated from law school, I did some work in, in the music space and in the community space. I want to circle back somehow into the public square. Um, so when Trump won, he, he made us really reflect on home uh, and, and made us really think about that timeline that we kept putting off. Um, and with that, you know, decided it was time to come home, time to really begin a new life uh, and recommit to home uh, and fight. Uh, you know, uh, for those things that we knew we benefited from when we were growing up here. Uh, you know, this is home and it's always been home. You know, I proposed to Lacey at the ship to shore in Kingston, uh, literally. Okay, that's why I proposed to her. Uh, I married her at the, we married each other at the Catterskill in Catskill. Um, you know, we, we, our families are here. Lacey's mother is the head of the Chamber of Commerce in Socrates, small business owner for over 30 plus years. Father, local accountant in Kingston. My parents are now retired in Schenectady with my brother and his wife. Um, this is home. And so I, 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 you know, I understand it's an easy sort of tagline that's been effective in the past, which I think is part of why Fazo uh, wants to take this route. But when you actually do the work of unpacking it and you understand the choice that we've made here and where it came from. And, and this is part of also me telling my story. Uh, and having the resources to do it right, you know, getting out there on TV, getting in the mail, knocking on doors, you know, talking to folks face to face, doing podcasts and letting folks know, you know, here's who you're talking to. Here's who I am. Uh, and I hope that that's enough to 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 let folks know, OK, we, we, we know where he's coming from with this. Do you think you'll stay here regardless of the outcome of the election? Absolutely. This is home. We don't have a home anywhere else. Our kids begin kindergarten. Uh, this fall, which we're excited about, um, you know, this was a this was a big decision. Uh, uh, this was a life changing decision. Um, you know, my life, win or lose, uh, and I want to win, and I intend to, um, um, will will be fundamentally different than when it was uh, before we came back home. So you actually alluded to some of your TV ads and mailers, and that's kind of one of the criticisms that's been lodged against the DCCC and just also some of the campaigns we've had here in the past where these TV ads and being bombarded with mailers are seems to be have been less effective in this district where people are very independent minded. Um, you know, we have uh, I think Doug kind of touched on this as well in his question where we have people that are looking for grassroots campaigns that don't have those glossy components and DC vendors, which are something that your campaign has made use of. So ha what, what's kind of your viewpoint on some of that criticism? Yeah, I mean, I, I look at it like this. We, we are an organization here of the people, for the people, by the people, right? We're, we're trying to do the work here from the ground up uh, and bring to bear every bit of our resources that we've worked very hard uh, to raise over the last year. Uh, I've raised more than a million and a half dollars from individuals, not corporations, not corporate PACs, but from people who believe in our platform and who want to do the work. And there are some practical realities uh, that come with running for Congress in this district. 
Uh, it is as big as Connecticut and Rhode Island combined, over 700,000 people, over 7,000 square miles. Uh, people get their news in every which way. Some folks go on, do it on TV. Other folks get it in mail. Other folks do it on social media. Other folks need you to go right up to their door uh, and knock. Um, and that's what it takes. You know, we can pull um, a little bit from here and say, oh, because this is on the air, they're only focusing on TV or because this is in the mailbox, they're only focusing on mail or because they're doing that. No, the fact that the matter is our approach, and it has been from the very beginning, is to do everything, A through D. Uh, that's what it takes to win. And that's what we all have to be thinking about as we move forward here. You know, the fact is 178,000 folks were registered to vote uh, in 2016 and did not. That is significantly more than 160,000 folks plus folks who voted for John Faso. And I'd argue the reason why they stayed home has nothing to do in the end with TV ads and with mail. It's because the candidates uh, uh, and the people need to be more engaged. Uh, and I think if we do that work now, as we've been doing um, in every way, shape or form, uh, we will turn those votes out and win. So what what types of things have you been doing in addition to TV ads and mailers and meet and greets that would effectively target those people that stayed home? Yes. Well, first, we have to identify new registered voters, right? Because that's important. A lot of new registered voters uh, came on the heels of 2016. Big development, right? And we're seeing it not just here at home, but across the country. There's been a, 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 a surge of folks who are stepping up now. So once you have that data set and you say, OK, here's the new set of folks who weren't registered in 2016, even registered, forget they stayed home. They weren't even registered. Let's go get them, right? Let's go to those communities. Let's knock on the doors. Let's canvas. This is the exciting thing about petitioning, by the way. What petitioning does is it enables you to really do that work and measure your reach, right? You need 1,250 signatures to get on the ballot, right? And they have to be original. You can't have duplicates. So doing the work with the volunteer group that you got, going around the district in every county, knocking on doors, having folks, including myself, do that work is critically important to building the organization moving forward, making the case day in and day out. And that's what we're here to do. Sure. Now, turning back to my my hard questions again, uh, on your background and your donors, um, it's just two words, Aiken Gump. It's been gotten a lot of questions about it. It's the biggest, it's the firm that you work for before you announce your run. Um, we know that you weren't in the lobbying group. You were in the litigation good. group. That's good. But um, <laughs> it is the biggest lobbying firm. And it is the individuals who work there. Yes, they were your colleagues, but they also are giving you a lot of money. And that's been a concern for a lot of people. And I think you address them by saying, you know, I'm going to stick to my principles. But what else can we look to other than your words to know that this firm, which is in the business of lobbying, won't impact you since they've given you so much and they're going to potentially be offering to fund your next congressional run if you win? Yeah. So I want to answer this question a couple of ways. First, I want to make it clear. Aiken Gump has not given me a cent. Sure. So that's just so when we use the word Aiken Gump has given, let's be clear. Aiken Gump hasn't given me anything. There are individuals who work at the firm, people um, who give me money, donors. Um, so the that's the first part. Um, the 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 second part is that Aiken Gump is one of the biggest law firms in the country. Uh, it's over 900 attorneys, over, I think, 19 offices. 
do all types of things. Um, you know, uh, the shop, as you noted, is a lobbying firm in D.C. I worked at the New York office. Um, a far ranging stuff from um, some stuff that I might not particularly be a fan of to stuff that I would line up right behind. Do great work in the um, asylum cases work, indigent immigrants. I did a lot of pro bono work on criminal justice reform, a lot of work um, in that area. So there's there's always an opportunity to do good work uh, within a firm that is as big and has as many resources as this firm has. Um, the notion that uh, because I've worked in this space, I therefore um, don't have the ability or don't have the desire or the commitment to do the work for working families uh, when none of the work that I did in that space was ever at odds with or um, undermining to working families, um, I, I find difficult to fully grasp. But let's take it outside of the realm of aching gum, because I think your question is valid when you want to understand who I am. Right. And where I come from. And you do have to look at my story and look at my life and understand to understand why you can be OK with that fact. Number one, where did I start? OK, I wasn't born to privilege and no one gave me anything. Uh, I had to work for it. I was cutting coupons and putting clothes on layaway with my parents when I was a very young kid. Uh, and I remember growing up and I remember my parents working very hard to make sure that I got a good education. I was a latchkey kid coming home, doing my homework at 10 years old, leaving it on the counter. My parents were buying in and hoping that I'd get into certain schools and make a way for myself, maybe be a doctor, maybe be a lawyer. Those were always the things floating around in my household, right? Because they were hoping and they were dreaming that one of their own children could be that, uh, particularly an African-American child, right? And so I lived that story. Now, uh, when I was at law school, um, I spend a lot of time in the community working with young men and women, young boys, uh, talking about the school to prison pipeline, doing that work there, uh, talking about street law programs and educating young kids about their Fourth Amendment law uh, rights so that when they're confronted by law enforcement, they know how to deal with that. Um, when I went off to uh, to law school, uh, I started to actually work with the hip hop community and the culture there. And How can we use the culture to help young kids uh, get inspired to get more civically engaged with their work? Now, at the heels or after graduating from law school, uh, I did not uh, uh, go work at a law firm, right? Even though I had over $200,000 of debt hanging over my head. Uh, I moved out to L.A., started my own independent music company with not a lot to my name, uh, but a dream uh, and a commitment to helping young folks sleeping on air mattresses, eating a cup of noodles, having odd end jobs like parking lot attendant. These are the things that I did for five years with my parents looking at me like I had eight heads. Because they understood that, okay, he's doing something that he believes in. Um, and then, yes, when I started my family, started to have children, my priorities shifted. Okay, how do I support? How do I also learn the language of finance? How do I learn the language of capital when so many of folks from my community have been shut out? And as I got into Aiken Gump and realized what I had accomplished, and I can tell you, my parents were very happy about that fact. Um, it was a moment where I recognized what I was able to do. I was one of maybe one or two other African-Americans in that space, uh, getting visibility into a world that for too long we've been shut out of. Um, so I bring all that to bear on this issue. Um, it's not as simple as you've worked here, therefore you're just going to be beholden. Um, I have a lot more depth to me uh, than just somebody who's worked in a law firm for the last six years. I think that's a great answer. <laughs> 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 I, I, it's like... It's, gonna follow up 
Um, the issue, though, is that a lot of folks aren't listening to the hour-long podcast and aren't getting your story, unfortunately, as much as I would like them to. And we would all like them to. And they hear something that Aiken Gump lobby firm, you know, kind of uh, grooms people to go into Congress and those congressmen filter back and become lobbyists. Is there anything that you would specifically do yes. to kind of prevent that or combat that narrative? Plus, if you are actually in Congress to uh, make sure that those types of firms aren't getting this foothold into creating this rigged system. Yeah. So I would say a couple of things. One, um, no one's putting me in Congress from making gum. Okay. The people who are putting me in Congress are the people who vote for me, right? Those are the folks who I'm beholden to. Those are the folks who I'm there to represent. Um, and I've made that clear to anybody who's ever given me a dime, um, is that this is the work that I'm doing for the folks here in the Hudson Valley and the Catskills. Um, and we're going to need resources no matter what uh, to win. Uh, and so I feel very privileged to be in a position um, to have folks um, uh, who want to help uh, and who are very clear on my, my platform and very clear on the message. Uh, and it's important that when you say, how do you get out in front of that little sound bite, right? Sure. Which, is, which is a good question. Yeah, and it's going around already. Right, right. Well, we're, we're already out there already, too. See, that's the key. When people talk about it's a double-edged sword, right? When people say, well, you're raising all this money, you know, it's, it is, what does that mean, right? Well, part of the reason you raise the kind of money we've been raising is to have the capacity to get out there and connect with folks through TV, through mail, through field, and me doing the hard work, all of that bringing to bear. And I want to also make the point, uh, who's the opponent? Let's, let's be, I mean, it's a very important to put this in context, okay? Who is the opponent? The opponent here is a lobbyist. The opponent here lobbied for oil and pipelines. The opponent here was dinged uh, for uh, pay-to-play violations while lobbying at Manat. The opponent here uh, lied to his constituents uh, on camera. Uh, the opponent here received or a max donor from uh, Robert Mercer and also had over $500,000 contributed by Mercer into his uh, uh, vote for, for FASO PAC. This is the opponent that we're up against. And so this idea that the fact that I've worked and spent time as a lawyer, litigator at Aiken Gump, uh, somehow can even remotely compare to him. Um, I, I find that hard to believe. Uh, and, I, and, and, and you better believe that I'm going to do everything that I can to remind people of those facts too. <laughs> uh, is there any possibility that you would consider joining the no PAC caucus? So Congressman Khanna from California actually did raise a ton of money from, you know, corporate and, you know, Silicon Valley. But after he got into Congress, he's part of this no PAC uh, caucus that's trying to get some money out of politics. Yeah, is that something I, you'd consider? I think it's a great idea to consider. I think it's always interesting when people are in Congress, right? And, and they take that position uh, once they're in, I think. But I think it's important that we consider that. I think, and I want to be clear on this. Um, I want money out of politics, completely out of it. Uh, I want to overturn Citizens United with, a, with an amendment to the Constitution. Um, I want publicly financed campaigns. Uh, I want, I would co-sponsor, I'd, I'd vote for the Government for the People Act that makes it easier for folks with limited means to run for Congress. 
uh, I'd be a champion for these issues. We have so much inequality right now. Uh, 80% of us being asked to share 7% of the wealth, two thirds of us living paycheck to paycheck. We cannot afford, our democracy cannot afford to have all this unlimited amount of money pouring into the system. People are being shut out. And so there's no, there's no clear issue for me on this than getting money out of politics. Uh, the fact remains, though, that we have a system that has money flooding through it. Um, and it is imperative that you play this game with your eyes wide open. Um, you don't sacrifice your principles. You know, I'm not taking money from corporate PACs, right? I'm taking money from individuals. I'm doing the work of asking for support uh, day in and day out. Sure. Turning to something that came up in your answer before, and you kind of alluded to maybe I'll be asking a question. Um, you had a hip hop career in LA, um, and that company it was kind of simultaneously working for you as an artist, right? And it was also doing these workshops for youth. And I'm kind of curious to know more about was it the company focused? Was it just a record label or was it some a uh, label that was focused on uh doing nonprofit work or yeah this is a good question i think it's good to kind of lay this out for folks so when i um decided to do this uh, and that is start my own independent uh company focusing on hip-hop culture uh, for the purpose of inspiring young people to get more involved and engaged uh, the idea, the genesis of the idea came from a lot of work that I have been doing in law school uh, where I was thinking about the history of the culture, the limitations of our legal system to bring about real change in, in, in the country. And I was trying to figure out new paths, uh, new new opportunities, new spaces to, to advocate for change. Um, an example, during the civil rights movement, the church was a space in which enabled change, right? People would come together, they'd strategize, they'd think through their issues, uh, and that became a literally a physical space that would bring about change. And since the 60s, what we've seen has been, it's been hard to find those changes, those spaces for change. Uh, and I studied hip-hop culture, and I thought, maybe there's a space here for change. If you study the history, if you know where it comes from and how it came to be, uh, and I wanted to put that work that I did in law school into practice, uh, and I was very fortunate enough to have a friend from undergrad who went to school with me at Colgate who said, you know what, let's partner up. Let's figure this out. Um, it was a for-profit. It was an independent uh, for-profit uh, label. The objective was to tell positive stories, to tell stories of uh, achievement um, and, and inspire engagement and do so in a commercial way because, well, you want to have people who are out there listening, the masses, uh, engaged. Uh, and, and be moved by this. I did not want to be just sort of underground. I, I really wanted to figure out how to push the narrative out there and to have commercial mass appeal. Um, it was a it was a very uh, high bar that we were setting um, and it took a lot of work. Uh, and within that space, we thought about how we can reach young people more directly. And so we work with after school programs like Second Chances uh, in L.A., uh, and develop curriculum to work with these kids about how they can get more excited about learning, staying after school to do the work uh, of empowering themselves. So all of that was a part of a, a larger vision that I had to enable folks to get inspired uh, to fight for change, uh, a more just, a more fair, 
uh, world. Keep in mind, I made this decision after graduating from law school. Um, it was not a rash decision. I was <laughs> I had thought this through extensively and the very things that I was talking about back then. Right. Income inequality, racial inequality, gender inequality, the environment and climate change. You know, all these things I was talking about then through the lens of music. I'm now talking about now. Sure. And I wish I wish we were in a place in this country where I wasn't even thinking about this question all morning um, because, you know, we were kind of off mic talking about all these social media uh, groups that are out there and something that's also been posed to me. And I think you spoke very eloquently on the issue of race in, in this primary um, because because kind of out of racist assumptions, people have been asking you, well, how will you uh, deal with the more racist elements of, of our county? Which there are. There, was, there were Confederate flags at the Delaware County Fair last summer. Uh, Justin and I witnessed a kind of cavalcade of trucks with Confederate flags on 209, a mile, two miles from, from our house here in Hurley. But I don't think it's a fair question. I don't think there's any reason to go down that road, but it keeps coming up because there are activists and there are people who are engaged that are very nervous about potentially turning off voters because of race and potentially uh, having John Fazzo use your cover from your hip hop album against you. And I don't even really want to ask this question because it's uh, it infuriated me, and I I try to we try to just kind of remain neutral on all of these yeah. platforms because so if he uses it, it's a reflection on him, not you. So yeah, I I, it, I don't want you to have to address it because I think you did so very eloquently, and it's just very sad. <laughs> well, I mean, I listen. I I I appreciate everything you said there, um, and it's a question that comes up. And, you know, it comes up um, and I and I, I do think it's worth using this platform um, to speak to it a little bit and hopefully reassure some folks, um, you know, a couple things on this. We shouldn't forget that Obama um, won this district uh, by 12 points in 2008. And then again, after it was redrawn uh, in 2012 and he did it, I would argue, because um, he spoke from his heart. Uh, he displayed a real desire uh, to serve people. Uh, and he was authentic in how he conducted himself and comported himself. And I think people from all walks of life, and I'd say the majority of people, not everybody, but the majority of folks, um, that's what they want. They want to feel like that you care and that even if you disagree on some of the policy specifics, uh, you're going to do right by them. The process will be fair. Um, and I think that's what I try to, to deliver when I communicate with anybody. But then this is a message I also want to give to my fellow progressives, uh, the folks out there who, the activists, as you put them, people who are super active and out there really about this fight um, and really desperate to change the course of this country and are appalled by some of the rhetoric that comes out of Trump's mouth and, you know, don't agree with what happened, how we talked about Charlottesville and, and don't think that the Muslim ban was appropriate and it was disgusting. And they take, they're really passionate about all these things and rightfully so, as I am too. There is a bit of um, inconsistency, if you will, uh, in that point of view, 
when instead of coming to me and saying, you know what, I, I think you can really do well here. I think we have a good chance to turn this thing around and, and, and really fight for our democracy. Let's make sure we get everybody out there who believes in what we believe in to show up like we did when Obama won. Right. Let's make sure we actually turn out the vote, because when we show up, we win as progressives. When we don't win is when we stay home instead of asking that kind of question, which is really about living your beliefs and living your principles. You allow this other mentality to creep in. And instead of focusing on how we can win, you focus on how not to lose. And the problem there is we've already lost no matter what. Because you've allowed a mentality to infect um, your approach, your worldview. Now, no one should vote for me. And I want to be clear uh, because I'm an African-American. It's not lost to me that I would be the first African-American uh, to win and, and serve in this district. That's, I mean, that's not lost on me. But no one should vote for me because of that. At the same time, though, no one should, particularly those who call themselves progressives, uh, somehow judge that to be a, uh, a defect, if you will or limitation, um, you know? And so I think it's important to make that point. And I, and I appreciate you actually giving me the platform because uh, it comes up and, and it does come up from a lot of folks who- I wish it didn't. Who call themselves I, You know, I, I looked at that, this, this question about the cover of the, the rap album and I thought back to my own life and, you know, there's a photo of me. Uh, my parents took us to Mecca. I said, what if I were running? And someone posted this picture and said, you know, well, how will this district vote for this person instead of, you know, focusing in on my actual history and what I've been doing? Yeah, and it, it, it and feeds... I, I didn't want to ask it. No, <laughs> then, but that's a, that's a great example. It's a great at example. The, at the same time, it's out there. Yeah. I uh, The whole position of this podcast has been to let's let's shed light on on everything that's out there so we can get ahead of ahead of the game. November. And I would hope and on this on that point about the actual example, which your example was a really good one on the, um, you know, the let's let's put a poster. Let's let's, you know, show Antonio in a hoodie and that's going to, you know, scare people. Um, I would hope that we're at a point now where that type of race baiting, particularly in the age uh, uh, of where we are now, um, we have a moment here. OK, this is a moment where for those of us who believe in equality, for those of us who are who want to push the, the project of equality along here uh, to step up uh, and push back. And we're seeing that happen already. They tried the race baiting stuff uh, in Virginia. OK. And what happened? Right. We're, we're seeing that people are hip to the game. Right. And they're saying, no, 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 not this time. You know, we're tired of this. So I, so the way I look at it is um, if that was to happen, I'd argue that it actually, you know, would probably embolden. Uh, and inspire folks, you know, who are on the sidelines or need a little bit more of a push to say, wait a second, excuse me, this is where we are still. And you better believe that I'm not going to be the kind of candidate that just sits by idly and apologizes or is 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 quiet in that situation. I'll call it what it is. Um, and that's what we need right now. We need folks to draw a line on this behavior. Let's get to the basics here and get to the reality of solving problems and stop this nasty, divisive race baiting behavior it's not who we are my story where i come from would not be possible if we didn't have the ideals and the values that we have right here in this country and so i'm here to fight for those uh not as even as a black i'm here to fight for them as an american right as a product of this community 
So will you will you commit to supporting another candidate if you don't win? And if so, what does that actually look like? You have this arsenal. You have a million and a half dollars. And I was listening back to our last episode and it was at that point, it was still an arsenal because it was hundreds of thousands of dollars. So um, what happens? And I know you don't none of the candidates like thinking that way. <laughs> because but uh it is a question that we get yeah well first of all i will support uh whoever the eventual nominee is uh full stop the question of how is really about any way that eventual nominee wants to use me um i think that i have a a lot of skill sets beyond even just the resources you know i think i have a pretty powerful voice um and i'd be willing to use that voice uh you know any way that i could be helpful um, whether it's on particular issues, whether it's certain communities, uh, reaching outreach, whatever the case might be, um, you know, I, I, I am excited to fight uh, to, you know, bring back some hope and some and some stability to the community, some opportunities here for folks. And uh, we have to unite uh, in order to do that. Sure. And, you know, we we have these candidates and your story is very compelling, but it's also similar to some of our other candidates stories how will you make sure you can differentiate yourself among this field of six, now seven <laughs> candidates and make sure the, that it's you who is the nominee? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there are some some similarities uh, with some of the other candidates. I mean, you're you the know. only Rhodes Scholar. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, um, um, you know, there there are some candidates who had to also lift themselves no, up. No, yeah, and, I, I, and, and I, I, yeah, that was more sort of an yeah. intro into my answer. Um, I, I, I look at this as more f- from the vantage point of how. Um, there's a tone to what we're doing here that I'm trying to strike um, and that I think is different than the rest of the fields. Um, I talk about concepts like love uh, and compassion. Um, I talk about morality a lot. Um, I talk about things that come from my heart and I think as I've traveled across the district and, and really deliberately tried to speak from my heart, um, I think that's what sets me apart. I think I have, and I don't know exactly where it all comes from, but I do know uh, that it's coming from deep inside of me. Um, and this is not about running for office. Uh, this is about uh, helping and serving in, in, in the way that I know I can. Um, and I think the more and more that I can convey that to people, and do the work and get out there and be humble in the process, I think that will set me apart. Um, and I think it'll also make people um, feel very good about what we're trying to accomplish here and, and, and do away with some of that ugliness that's sort of seeping into our politics or has been there for too long, but really restore some dignity, um, some civility uh, and some honor you know, to, to, this, to this process. Um, and I think collectively we can do that. And that, that's what I really want to do. I really want to help us get to that place. We'll be back next week with our Tiny Town Hall series finale with Democratic congressional candidate Brian Flynn. Until then, thanks for listening and keep the faith.